especially these words, uh, which tell us that in verse 15, when it pleased God, in verse 16, to reveal his Son in me, at the end of verse 17, I went to Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Now, I'm conscious, as I'm sure you are yourselves, that it's been uh, some time since we were in this letter, and I suppose it's understandable if you may have lost the thread. But I hope you'll remember anyway that uh, this letter is written because of Paul's uh, concern for the Galatian Christians. You'll remember that they are uh, Celtic peoples, and for that reason alone, I suppose, we have a particular affinity with them. But he's concerned that these Celtic peoples have effectively, he says, been bewitched. That is the expression that he uses concerning them in chapter 3. In other words, although they originally came under the good spell of the gospel, they received it as a good story, a divine story, and of course a true story, he is now concerned that they are coming under the bad spell of a false gospel. Now the architect, of course, of that false gospel, as we saw, is really Satan himself, who is the father of lies, himself a liar, and the father of lies, and of course a murderer from the beginning. He has his own message, and that message, of course, includes false forms of the gospel. And he has his own messengers, who, as we saw already, can sometimes take the appearance of ministers of righteousness or angels of light. And that's because he presents a gospel that is not really a gospel at all. And, of course, in chapter 1, Paul tells the Galatians that that is the kind of gospel that they are in danger of embracing. These false teachers are following Paul around wherever he plants a church, and they are perverting the gospel. And on every occasion, the particular perversion of the gospel is a kind of perversion that means that there is no offence uh, attached to the cross anymore. Their primary concern was to make it more tolerable for themselves to live in a Jewish community. They're conscious that the kind of gospel Paul was preaching was making it difficult for them to live in a Jewish community, so they wanted to bring the gospel back into alignment with the Old Testament gospel. Now, that's the particular problem in Galatia. For ourselves, we just simply need to lay hold of the principle that Satan always tries to adjust the gospel in such a way that it loses its cutting edge and loses its saving power at the same time. So we always need to be vigilant in that respect. I've no doubt that in our own generation, in our own culture, the particular form that takes is the preaching of a gospel that is devoid of the need of repentance, a gospel that never seems to call out sin or identify sin, but just calls you to believe in Jesus. Forsake nothing, change nothing, but just add Jesus into the mix. 
that is a perversion of the gospel. Of course, Satan is the author of that. And it's always easy to deceive people who want to be deceived. And, of course, people by nature do. We want to be lulled by nature into a sense of security in respect of our soul and eternity, and Satan finds it easy to do exactly that. Now, as we saw, it's no surprise that uh, Satan and these false teachers are targeting Paul. And in order to target him, they have to target, first of all, his call, that it's not real. He's not a genuine apostle at all and therefore not worth listening to. He is simply not the same as Peter and James and John. They'll have their own spin on what Peter, James and John taught, but certainly it's enough for them to say uh, Paul is just different. He, he wasn't with them. He's not a, a real, a genuine apostle at all. And of course, as well as attacking his call, they are attacking his message, that his message is not the real gospel. To get the real gospel, you have to listen to the people in Jerusalem. Now, last time, with the Lord's help, I hope we saw plainly how Paul described his call, how God called him, not just to be a preacher of the word, but actually to be an apostle. In other words, he was directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And in an extraordinary appearance, the Lord of glory appeared as the resurrected Jesus appeared visibly to call Paul into the apostleship. You couldn't be an apostle without being directly called by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one reason, it's not the only reason, but it's one reason why there are no apostles in the churches today. But Paul was called to be an apostle. So he reaffirms that to these Galatians, and now he turns to his message, the actual gospel that he preaches, the gospel of God, the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he has to say in connection with this message is more or less the same as what he said in connection with his call. In other words, just as Christ called me directly without human mediation, without any human help, so Christ taught me directly, without any human mediation, without any human help at all. I didn't get the gospel, he said, from Peter or from James or for John. In fact, he says, I was three years following the gospel before I set eyes on any of them. And in these three years, the Lord taught me. Just as the twelve were taught by Christ, for three years, so, Paul says, I was taught directly by Christ for three years as well. It's worth mentioning here, and it's, it's not really uh, the time uh, to go into it, but it, it's worth noting that whoever preaches the gospel at any time must be prepared for doing so. And in one way or another, they must be taught of God. Um, they won't be taught directly in the same way as Paul was, we'll see in a moment. But nonetheless, they must be taught 
led and trained by the Holy Spirit of God and equipped to preach the gospel. That is always the pattern in the word of God, and it still is. When you find self-appointed people who have had no training or preparation in the proclamation of the word, that is not a biblical thing. It is not a biblical precedent. Even Paul, who was directly called, needed three years of preparation before he was found faithful in order to preach the word. I'll come back to that later on. Now, the key to understanding this preparation in Paul's life uh, lies in distinguishing two revelations that are spoken of in, in these verses that we read there, just verses 11 through to 17. He distinguishes two revelations in the chapter. The first is a revelation of Christ in him. And the second is a revelation of Christ to him. And these are different. They may sound the same, they may sound similar, but they are, in fact, very, very different. In verse 12, he says that he wasn't, he didn't receive his gospel from anyone, didn't get it from any man. He wasn't taught it by any man, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. There, that means that Christ taught it to him personally. That's what that means. But then if you move down to verse 15, he speaks of a second revelation. When it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, notice when it pleased God to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, he says, I went to Arabia, and then I returned to Damascus. So in one case, Christ is revealed in him. In the other case, Christ is revealed to him. Now let's begin with the revelation of Christ in him. Now, I'm conscious it's difficult to get a hold of that at the moment, but if you just bear with it and follow it along, it'll become more plain. The revelation of Christ in him, in his soul. As we'll see in a moment, that's a revelation that we all need, apostle or not. Everyone needs a revelation of Jesus Christ in them. And that revelation needs to be given to you by God himself. It is God who reveals the Son to you, and the Son then begins to reveal God. That's just the way it works. No man knows the Father but the Son. And no one knows the Son except he to whom the Father reveals him. So what happens or what has to happen to you tonight if you're not a Christian is that God, by his Spirit, reveals the identity of the Son to you. And he must reveal that identity not just to you but in you. It's an internal thing. It's inside. It's in your heart you begin to see and to discern and to appreciate that the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, the Lord of glory, Lord of all, and the only Saviour, the only name given under heaven amongst men whereby we can be saved. Now Paul says that this Christ 
was revealed in him. Now that, of course, happened in connection with the events on the way to Damascus. You'll remember that Christ appeared to him. Now, that's an external thing so far. Just follow this along. Christ, first of all, appeared to him in his glory on the Damascus road. Now, that was an outward thing. It was an external thing. At this point in time, there is nothing particularly happening inside. In fact, the only thing that happened is external. Uh, The glory of this Christ was so great that it eclipsed the glory of the midday sun. Think of that for a moment. The glory was so great, great that it eclipsed the glory of the midday sun. And when Saul opened his eyes, he could see nothing at all. Nothing. And he was led by the hands into the city of Damascus. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be revealed in him. And you'll notice that when he describes that, in verse 16, he describes it not as Christ being revealed in him, but he says his son or God's son. God revealed his son in me. The Father revealed the Son. Now, how did that happen? After all, on the Damascus road, uh, Saul said, Who are you, Lord? He's conscious that whoever this is, he has a remarkable glory attached to him. And he simply asks, Who are you? Christ never introduces himself as being the Son of God at all. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, Paul is in a daze here, and he he really doesn't understand what's happening at all. Just as as many people don't when God uh, first begins uh, working in your soul, uh, before it becomes a real, internal, transformational work. Um, God starts to do things that are very confusing, Uh, Saul of Tarsus' world is being absolutely turned upside down. Um, It's about to be turned upside down, Let's, let's put it that way. But right now he doesn't understand what's going on at all. And and in a way that's symbolized by the blindness that God chooses to put on Saul's eyes at this time. It's going to become effectively a teaching device. If you remember at the time of the communion, the two who were traveling on the way to Emmaus, their eyes were restrained so that they would not recognize the Christ. And it was only at a particular point in time, a particular time of God's appointment, that that restraint was taken away. Their eyes were opened and they understood that the person who was with them who was teaching them was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now the blindness that comes upon Paul is a real blindness, of course. It's a physical blindness, but it's symbolic too. It's symbolic of a spiritual darkness. And he's being led by the hand at this point into the city of Damascus, not by friendly Christians. He's being led by people around him who don't understand what have happened either. Uh, 
they just don't understand the events that have taken place. But the man who was at their head, the one who had the commission to seize Christians, uh, to bring them into chains and to torture them if need be, kill them, preferably so, this man is reduced to a position of impotence and helplessness. They lead him into the city and they take him to the house of a man called Judas, who is obviously a leading Jew. I mean, he's not going to be a Christian. They're not going to take him to a Christian's house. They bring him to the house of Judas, who is a Jew, a prominent man who lives on the street called Straight. I understand that the main street in Damascus is still called Straight. It's the main thoroughfare in Damascus. This man had a house there, and Saul is taken there. And for three days and three nights... He eats nothing and he drinks nothing. That's understandable. There's so much to take in, so much to understand. It's a time of prayer, a time of constant prayer. It's a time of reflection and it's a time of meditation. After all, the Lord Jesus Christ said more to him than we would understand in Acts chapter 9. We're told later when Paul gives an account of this conversion, he tells us that when Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he actually went on to say this. Now, you try and take this in yourself, and you try and take it in as though you were Paul, hearing this for the first time. This is somebody, by the way, speaking that you think has died a cursed death and has effectively gone to hell, gone to hell as an imposter, gone to hell as a child of the devil. And certainly he is speaking to him in a blaze of glory. Now imagine that and put yourself in those shoes. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up, he says. And stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you, right now, in other words, on this Damascus road, for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness of the things which you've seen right now, and the things which I will yet reveal to you. Now, that's going to become important. The things which I will yet reveal to you, I'll deliver you from Jews and from Gentiles. And to these Gentiles, I am commissioning you to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When we read words like that, as Gentile peoples, We should rejoice and be glad that they were spoken and that that was in the heart of Christ. I remember the communion service at which I came forward. We were talking about this in a a fellowship last Sabbath evening. But I remember on the Sabbath morning of the communion, it was the late John MacLeod, previously of Shobost and Gerlo, who was preaching. And his text was, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring in. And I remember him making the point very distinctly that all those who were present that day, and that that was in North Uist, of course, at the time where that was preached, 
But all those who are present that day as Christians should be so grateful for these words that I have other sheep which are not of this Israelite fold. He knows them and he will call them, each one by name. Them also, he says, I must bring. When we read in the Psalms of the Isles hearing the word of God, that's a reference to all island configurations beyond what they consider to be the mainland of the Jewish Empire, including us here tonight. And when we come across words like that, we should rejoice and be glad that they were spoken and that God had us in mind and that he had us in his purpose. When we consider the vast expanse of the heavens, when we consider the earth, the people who have inhabited the earth, we look at ourselves individually and we say, well, who are we? Who are our communities? Who are our families? When Gideon was aware that God was calling him to something, he said, well, who am I? And I am the least in my father's house, and my father's house itself is nothing. But God doesn't work like that. And God remembers the poor and the indigent and those who have no help of man at all. And so God calls and commissions. And here he is calling the apostle of the Gentiles. It is through that call of Paul that you yourself have heard the gospel. It is through the preaching of that man by the grace of God that the gospel came into Europe and reached where you are. And I am here tonight and praise God for that. But for now the critical thing is that all this is swirling around in the head of Saul of Tarsus, sitting in a house of a man called Judas, where he has in all probability never been before, with his whole world upside down, expecting to be rounding up Christians and persecuting them. And here he is, wrestling with exactly who it is that has spoken words like this. Who is it? Is it Really, Jesus of Nazareth? Is it an imposter? Is this a devilish thing? Is it a satanic delusion? Who is it that has appeared to him on the Damascus road? After three days in a difficult condition, and those of you who have been in spiritually difficult condition, Conditions know how difficult these conditions can be. When multitudes of thoughts, like we were thinking of on Thursday night, are going through your head, this and that, could it be this and could it be that, you're scared that this is the voice of the devil, or is it the voice of God? And then suddenly he gets a vision. And in all his confusions of mind, God just tells him that shortly a man is coming to see him, who will lay hands on him. And Ananias comes and he gives him the gift of the Holy Spirit before he actually does that. We read that Ananias himself said to Saul, Brother Saul, that's a, that's a lovely thing by the way. Ananias was terrified at going to this man's house uh, for obvious reasons. But God still disheartened he had plenty of reasons, according to the flesh, to call him something else. Brother Saul, he said, receive your sight. And then he went on to say, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will as an apostle, to see the just one, 
Ananias knew that he had actually seen Christ, and to hear the voice of his mouth, You will be a witness to all men of what you've seen and heard. And now he says, Why are you waiting? That's, that's an astonishing expression. Why are you waiting? He says, Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You notice that Ananias speaks to him here as somebody who doesn't have what we would call the liberty of the gospel. He doesn't have a consciousness at all of his sins as such being forgiven. He doesn't have a sure sense until this point of who it is exactly that has called him. But at this point, God reveals his son in him. He reveals his son in him. And fittingly, it's at this point that he opens his eyes and he sees something like scales just falling away. It's as though there were scales of some kind over his eyes and he sees them effectively fall away and he can see. And he can see physically because he can see spiritually. And God has chosen to open his eyes at the point where his eyes have been opened to see the glory of the Son of God. That's who this Jesus is. It's one thing even to recognize him as Jesus of Nazareth. It's one thing to come round to the opinion that I must have been wrong about that anyway, that, that this Jesus is somehow honored by God, but it's more than that that he saw. God revealed not Jesus to him, but his son to him. He recognized that the one, well, whose crucifixion he supported and he welcomed, the one whose name he wanted to obliterate and his followers with him, was none other than the Lord of glory himself, the Son of God. As the creed says, very God of very God, genuinely God, begotten of genuine God. At that moment, God reveals his Son in him, and he understands. The two in the way to Emmaus had their understanding opened by the Lord. The eleven apostles, when Christ met them, had their understanding opened by the Lord. And so he understands. The light's been switched on. As Christ said to the two on the way to Emmaus, he's effectively saying to him here, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to have entered into glory? And just as in a flash, the main things become plain. Yes, that's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Yes, that is the man whose hands and feet were pierced. How, how could I miss this? How could I have not seen it? How could I have not understood? And when he sees the Son revealed to him in his glory like that, he can say that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what was going on at the cross. That's what was going on at the cross. And when these things 
are so, you'll see that Saul's conversion didn't really take place on the Damascus Road when he encountered the Lord. It took place in the house of Judas, in a street called Straight, when he saw the real identity of this man. And he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, as Ananias said, confessed his sins. He had his sins washed away, baptized, as I said, with the Holy Spirit. And he becomes a Christian. He becomes a Christian. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that revelation of Christ in us needs to happen to you. I could bring Christ before you. A brother or sister may bring Christ before you and hold up Christ for you. Just as Paul, you'll remember, placarded the Lord Jesus Christ before the Galatians. His portrayal of a crucified Christ was so real and so graphic as to be effectively a placarding of the Lord before them. But that is Christ to you. That's objective. That's outside. What you need to see is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in you, in a way that transforms you, changes your heart, changes your life, changes your opinions, changes your standards, changes the things that you value, recognizing Christ in such a way that you become a new creature by his power. Old things passed away and all things become new. Now, of course, it took time for Paul to come to that recognition himself. There was quite a space of time between the arrest on the Damascus Road and the scales falling from his eyes. It could be shorter in your time frame or it could be longer. The question of how long this illumination takes is never really the issue. It's something that we're often quite obsessed with. And in fact, sometimes as you become a Christian and as you live as a Christian for quite a period of time, you can begin to reassess these things. And you begin to wonder, well, did the light perhaps come in at that point? Was it at that point that I began or that the Lord began to lay hold upon me? You're never sure, perhaps. And after all, the question is not when you saw, but do you see? Do you see? Is Christ glorious to you? Over that three-day period, this mysterious figure changed from being that, even if he was in a blaze of glory, uh, to being the glorious Lord and Savior. He began to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, immediately when that happens, we're told that after a few, well, he was baptized, he had food, and he was strengthened. The book of the Acts tells us that he immediately began to preach in the synagogues. Now, I'm going to suggest to you, and it's only a suggestion really at this point, that he's not really doing that particularly at this point in response to his calling as such, but simply as a witness in his own post. Remember, he is an elder and he is a young rabbi himself. He is a trained expositor of the word of God. Every time he would go to a synagogue, he would be invited to sit on the elder's bench. 
And he may be one of those who would be handed the scroll and asked to say a word of exhortation to the people who are present. So all I would suggest to you that all Paul is doing at this point is simply using the opportunity that's present to him. He's doubtless, as, as, as the visiting, nobody knows what's happened to this man. Nobody knows where he was led, why he was led there and why he has been three days in the house of Judas. Nobody. All they know is that he appears in the synagogue. And they're full of expectation because he's going to sort out the problems in Damascus. He's going to weed out the Christians. And he's going to establish things the way they were before. So they'll certainly hand him the scroll. Brother Saul, would you exhort us? Oh yes, he'll exhort. All right. And when he opens the scroll and he chooses his reading, he chooses a reading in which he can make plain, as our Lord did in Nazareth, when he opened the scroll of Isaiah and put himself into the scroll, we can be sure that Paul did exactly the same. Some of you will know uh, or remember Ross Blackman, who was here as a a Jehovah's Witness in in the town, I I remember him telling me that uh, when he first began to understand that Christ was more than a creature, that he was more than an exalted creature, and he was more than the greatest creature ever created, that he was in fact God himself, he says he, he began to introduce that in his teaching in the Jehovah's Witness building. That was a deliberate thing that he did. He just began to introduce it. People began to recognize that there was something in what he was saying, that was giving too much place and too much dignity and too much honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that continued until they effectively told him to go. Well, that's what's happening here. He is preaching in the synagogue that Christ is the Messiah and the Son of God. Now, there was a furore whenever Christ preached that he was the Messiah You can imagine the same kind of shock here. I mean, here are the Jews packing out the synagogues. And the famous Saul of Tarsus, the chief persecutor, has come with commissions. And they know that the news has gone round. In fact, Ananias and the Christians know that he has come to Damascus with commissions to persecute. They expected this man to have a, a commission from the church to exterminate Christians. And lo and behold, he reveals himself as a person who has a commission from the God of the church to bring Christians to birth, to propagate the gospel, and to see men, women, and children born again by the power of God. Now, it's always a a remarkable thing when someone who is um, so much against a cause is turned round to be so much for it. That person immediately becomes a champion. In fact, at the end of chapter 1 here, we're told that Paul, even when he was unknown to the churches south in Judea, the only thing that they were hearing was that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. It's a wonderful thing. There are Christians here tonight who were headlong going in the opposite direction. You may be yourself going headlong in the opposite direction, but the Lord Jesus can take hold of you and transform you too. He has that power 
may he exercise it in your soul, turning you, as he said to Saul, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. And he continued preaching in Damascus, in the synagogues, the same message. But Paul knows that more is needed than that. More is needed than that. Why? Because Christ said to him that he had much more to tell him. Much more to tell him than the fact that he was the Messiah, he was the Son of God, and he was the Saviour. There's far more to tell him than that. And once the Apostle or Paul understands that, he knows that he needs a second revelation. This time it's not a revelation from the Father identifying Christ. It is actually an, a revelation from Christ himself in which Christ leads him deeper into the truth concerning himself. In other words, in verse 12, I neither received the gospel from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here that doesn't mean uh, an understanding of who Christ was from God the Father. It means that Christ himself takes the matter in hand and starts to reveal the secrets and the depths of the gospel to himself. That's why he goes to Arabia, because he knows he needs to be taught. Now, I don't know if he was led to that place um, in a special way by God, or did he just feel a leading uh, that that's where he wished to be because he wished isolation. When, when God has something to do in your soul, and this isn't just applicable at the time of conversion, there are many points subsequent to conversion in your life where God has to do something in your soul by way of cleansing or by way of advancement or just moving up like that a level spiritually. There are many points like that in your life when you need to be alone with God and to be taught by God in a special way. That's what Saul understands. It's, it's not Damascus he needs to be in. It's Arabia. Where in Arabia? Well, obviously no one can say definitively because he didn't tell us definitively. But he does tell us in chapter 4 of this book that Arabia is where Mount Sinai is. And I can't help but wonder if it's to that vicinity that he was drawn. And that he was drawn there for obvious reasons. The people that he esteemed so much in the history of his people, the spiritual history of his people, and for good reasons, they had so much association with that place. Mount Sinai is where Moses was alone with God. It's where Moses saw the glory of God. It's where Moses was 40 years later to receive a pattern for the tabernacle. And it's where Moses asked to see the glory of God and saw the glory of God. Many, many years after that, it's where Elijah went under a profound sense of spiritual depression. 
it may be. But nonetheless, he went there, and he went there to meet with God and to see the glory of God, which he saw in a wind and in a quake and in a fire, but especially in a still, small voice. And if God was present with them, and if God communicated with them there in the wilderness in the solitary place, well, God will communicate with him too. He needs to know what Christ has to say to him. And so he goes where God has spoken in the past, where God has revealed himself and shown his glory. And that's where he goes. And that's where Christ begins to teach him everything that all the other apostles saw and heard. Not just the doctrine that he taught the other apostles in these three blessed years, but even the incidents that happened, the miracles, the significance of the miracles, the events, what the apostles did and how he taught them, all these things are gone over by the Lord Jesus Christ, directly, I believe, by his Spirit, teaching the Apostle Paul. No human mediator. There's no one. Just him and Christ. Him and Christ. When he's writing to the Corinthians, who are abusing the Lord's Supper, he brings them back to the basics of the ordinance, In these words that we read all the time before we actually observe the supper, when he tells them how to keep it, he says these words, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. He doesn't say Peter told me, John told me, James told me what happened that night. No, he says, I got it from the Lord. How on the same night in which he was betrayed he took bread, when he had given thanks he broke it and said, Take Eat, this is my body. This do in remembrance of me. And again with the cup, the new covenant sealed in my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Christ taught him that. Christ taught him that. In fact, he says to the same church later on, that I delivered to you, That which I also received, he says, as being of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ taught him that. In in these days in Arabia, Christ showed him fully, meticulously, carefully, how all the Scriptures, with their deaths and resurrections, their baptisms, their sprinklings and their cleansings, how all these things were teaching about himself, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. I received that he was buried. I received that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. I was taught that by him, and that he was seen by Peter first, and then he was seen by the twelve, and then he told me that afterwards he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And he says, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. He learned all that, not by man, but direct from Christ.
Now, friends, obviously there's a unique element to this. Because as an apostle, he's catching up with all that was taught, and he's being taught it in a direct way, and the Holy Spirit enables him to retain it all and to deliver it all. Just like Moses kept the pattern that he was shown on the mount when he was building the tabernacle. But, unique as it is, there's no doubt that there's a general principle here that's applicable to you and to me. The principle is just this one, that we may be taught in public, but we learn in private. We learn in two universities when it comes to spiritual things. The first university is the university of God's word, and it should be a university. It shouldn't stay a primary school. We learn in the university of God's word. The second university in which we learn is life itself. But everything we learn in the university of the word and in the university of life experience is applied and assimilated in the secret place. Let's be clear about that. That's where you make your progress. That's where you make your headway. When you turn what life, well, I shouldn't say what life throws at you, what, what God brings to you in life. When you take what God brings to you in life and what God teaches you in his word, even as he's doing that for all of us, me with you here tonight, when you take that and only when you take that to God yourself in a secret place, in your own sanctuary, only then do you learn it. Only then do you assimilate it. And does it become really part of yourself. John the Baptist has a wilderness. Saul has Arabia. The twelve have constant retreats and times apart with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone needs that. It's in the secret place that ministers are made. And it's in the secret place that Christians are made to. You can be sure of it tonight that the ripest Christians and the ripest ministers of the word are those who are in the secret place with God. That's where they assimilate every lesson that God teaches. And whatever you receive tonight will only really become a part of you when you take it with you and do something with it. When Christ is finished teaching Paul, he's ready to begin, not just to witness that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's ready to take on full apostolic duty to regulate and guide the Church of Christ. It's one thing to stand up in the synagogue and testify to Christ. To some extent, that's what we're all doing in whatever walk of life we're in, I hope. I hope you take your Christianity to work with you. Of course, it's easier for me to do that. But you need to do it too. But by the time Christ has finished teaching him, he is ready to be an apostle. And that explains something that you may perhaps have found strange in the Bible and 
even when we read the passage and preached on it last week, I, I didn't highlight it, but can, can we just go forward quickly to it before I close? If you turn to 1 Timothy and chapter 1, you'll find that on uh, page 1819 in the Church Bible. 1819. Our text last week was in verse 15 of this chapter, if you remember, last Sabbath morning. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he adds this to that faithful saying, of whom he says, I am chief or a chief or a prime example. But for this reason, you'll remember, I obtained mercy, so that through him and his mercy, uh, God would show patience and long-suffering to others who are going to believe as well. So they shouldn't despair, however dark their past has been, because God saves chiefs among sinners. But if you go back to verse 12, you'll notice some words that appear strange. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. You ever thought about those words? We can understand that Christ Jesus enabled him. We can understand that Christ Jesus put him into the ministry, although he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man. Well, God does these things. But what does he mean by saying, because he counted me faithful? Faithful. If he's referring to his call to the ministry on Damascus Road, he has by no means been faithful. He has been the absolute opposite of that. Friends, the only thing that helps us understand this is that he's referring to the fact that before he began work as an apostle, that he was trained and tested after three years, as our Lord himself was tested after three years, and he was found faithful. And it was then that he was commissioned and he went out not just to Damascus, but he went out to the ends of the earth. Yes, Paul is effectively saying to the Galatians, you may doubt me, you may listen to those who doubt me, and you may prefer their message to mine. But I'm no time server. I'm not here, he says, to please a man. If I pleased a man, he says, I would not be the bondservant of Christ, which you see that I am. I was called directly by him. I received the message from his mouth. I was taught as well as called. And the message that you receive <clears throat> is the message of the gospel of the grace of God. And to go back where we began, we're thankful for that message ourselves. And we're thankful that he persevered in preaching it. Now, <clears throat> what our generation needs, let me say in closing... And it's easy to make statements like that, but I have no hesitation in making it. But what our generation needs is strong men and women of God. It's, it's not a day for half-hearted Christianity and half-hearted discipleship. 
It's not a day for just getting by because the world out there is perishing and it needs strength in you and strength in me. It needs strength amongst us in the pew and strength in the pulpit. For that, it needs people who know how to go apart with God. Let it be true of me that I know how to go apart with God for your sake. Let it be true, too, that you know how to sanctify yourself and you know how to go apart with God for that growth in grace and growth in strength that your family needs and that your community needs. It's interesting that we're told that Paul was strengthened more and more as he testified to the glory of God. We need that strength. Sometimes I think that a lot of our situation is due to our weakness in the secret place. Resolve that that finishes. Resolve that that weakness, by the grace of God, stops now. That you rediscover prayer and that you rediscover power, the power that comes through prayer. We'll leave this and pick it up, God willing, next time. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, grant us an understanding heart and a willing spirit and give us grace to grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, remembering always that knowledge in itself puffs up, but love always edifies. Give us grace to draw near to you to come apart and to do so regularly, that we would grow in spiritual experience and understanding and that we would be of help and encouragement one to another and also a more bright and shining witness to an unbelieving and a perishing world. In Christ's name, Amen. Let's um, close our worship (coughs) singing the praise of God in Psalm 116. Psalm 116 and at verse 3. Of death the cords and sorrows did about me compass round. The pains of hell took hold on me. I grief. And trouble found. Upon the name of God the Lord then did I call and say, Deliver thou my soul, O Lord, I do thee humbly pray. God merciful and righteous is, yea, gracious is our Lord. God saves the meek, and I was brought low, he did me help afford. O thou my soul, do thou return unto thy quiet rest. For largely low, Um, that doesn't mean in a substantial measure, but in in a huge measure, in great measure, the Lord to thee his bounty hath expressed. Three to seven we stand to sing.
Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.